you, and I'd just like to welcome you back to Grenada, and here's wishing for a very productive semester. Today we're going to be speaking about genetic screening and genetic counseling. So we're going to be discussing a number of sensitive issues today. We're going to be discussing how we can test um, pregnancies prenatally to see if there's perhaps a genetic defect, and then we're going to be discussing some of the choices that families make after. So it's my objective to um, disseminate this knowledge in a fair way to discuss both sides of all the issues. And you'll be learning as um, when you start to take, when you begin your ethics courses, I think it's in term three. A lot of times we have to discuss things with patients that we don't necessarily believe ourselves, but we just want to give the information as truthfully as possible, perhaps um, on both sides of the fence, because we're going to be discussing um, prenatal diagnosis, and if we have a difficulty, we give the information to the family. And it's up for them to choose which way they want to go with this pregnancy. So I'm going to be using some terms like um, medical, medical um, uh, I, actually, I just lost the words because I'm getting old. Um, we're going to be having um, the, the medical abortions, and we're going to be discussing um, perhaps telling families how to cope with um, a child that might have a genetic difficulty. So we're going to be talking about termination. We're going to be talking about proceeding. What I want to tell you is that I'm going to do my best to be politically correct and try to use the proper words um, with knowing that there's a lot of people here in this lecture theater who don't believe in it or are opposed to it. But it's our job as, phys as future physicians to be able to disseminate all of the information fairly on both sides and ask for the family to go to whoever, whatever their spiritual um, belief is and think about their situation, and then they can come up with their own solution. So that's, that's I just hope that I don't um, upset anybody by the terminology. I'm going to be doing my best to make sure I'm politically correct and to try to speak about both sides of the fence, okay? So we have objectives that are associated with the genetic screening and the, the genetic counseling. We have some assigned readings. And this is to so that I can remind you that some of the things we're going to be speaking about today might be a little bit sensitive. So when we speak about genetic screening, there's two basic types of genetic screening. We have the targeted screening and the population screening. So I'll begin to speak about the population screening because it's something that you might be more familiar with. And that's the adult screening and that's the pre-symptomatic. And we can think of some of the pre-symptomatic things that we in this room might be doing. We have the, the pap test, the breast um, exams, and we have the prostate exams, things like that. And this is screening all members of a designated population, regardless of family history or regardless of, of, um, of any, any, any situation. You just do this pre-symptomatic screening. It's something that you do on a regular basis to try to find out things before we start to see clinical features of a disease so that the healthier a person is when we start to implement some sort of therapy, the better chance that therapy has. And then we're going to be discussing targeted screening. Now, I know last term you learned a lot about genetics. We have the autosomal dominant disorders, the autosomal recessive disorders. And we know that certain populations have a high tendency to carry a mutation. Like um, my people, I'm from Northern Europe, so um, I have a 1 in 25 chance of carrying the Delta F508 mutation for cystic fibrosis. Um, the Ashkenazi Jewish population have um, a high carrier frequency of a number of disorders, Tay-Sachs and Gaucher disease, and then the Mediter people of Mediterranean descent might have, they have a high chance of having, um, carrying a mutation for some of the thalassemias. So when we're speaking about targeted screening, it might be a, uh, maybe me, um, I might have cystic fibrosis in my family, so I want to know if I'm a carrier. So it would be a targeted screening for that. Or if I know that I'm a carrier for sure and I want to have children um, with my husband, then I perhaps might want to have him get this targeted screening to see if he carries any uh, common mutations for cystic fibrosis. So this is what I mean by targeted screening. The next couple of slides are just reiteration of what I just said, that targeted screening is pre for screening for pre-symptomatic disorders, but we can also have not just these autosomal recessive disorders, inborn errors of metabolism. We could also have um, these disorders that are dominant, but they might have late penetrance. And some of the things that we can think about are Huntington's disease. We can think about breast cancer. I might have a mutation for breast cancer, but it won't express until I'm in my 60s. 
we also know that we can screen for carriers. So um, if I have a, a known disease in my family like cystic fibrosis, I can detect whether I'm a carrier or I can test to see if I'm a carrier. So some of the examples of targeted screening with the Ashkenazi Jewish population, oftentimes I think there's um, a, a religious law in New York that anybody in the Ashkenazi Jewish population before they get married, they have a chance of having the screening done for, for both spouses so they can have information to make their own choices what they're going to do with their, their, uh, with their um, thoughts of having a family. And then again, we have the thalassemia. That's um, high frequency in the Mediterranean Asian population. Sickle cell anemia in the African and, and Caribbean population. Sometimes it's as frequent as 1 in 10 in Caucasian cystic fibrosis, definitely. So this targeted screening will be so that I have information regarding my reproductive um, chances of having a child with um, a difficulty, particularly if I'm in a high-risk population. Some of the population screening that we're going to be speaking about today are prenatal screening and newborn screening. So prenatal screening is just um, almost everybody, every woman in North America, when they get pregnant, they typically want to um, do some prenatal screening. They have um, the serum testing done looking for markers of genetic difficulties. They get ultrasounds. We get ultrasounds. Um, so this is everybody in the population has these tests typically, um, whether or not there's any family history of any disorders. And then now um, in more than 44 countries across the world, we have a newborn screening program where infants um, at 24 hours, between 24 and 48 um, hours of age, we take a little bit of blood and we do some testing to see if they have any inborn errors of metabolism. We're going to be discussing that. You're going to be learning a lot more in term two about metabolism, metabolism of proteins, uh, carbohydrates and fats, and all of the difficulties that a person can have if they have mutations in the enzymes that metabolize these food sources. And that's what we look for um, predominantly in, with a newborn screening. So I have on the slide here, we have clicker questions next, so hopefully you all have your clickers out. Yes? Okay, I think I'm going to cut this short. I think everybody's voted. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, so 76% of you uh, selected mammogram. And we're talking about population screening. So we're talking about testing everybody regardless of family history. And the one that um, the best answer here is mammogram. Whereas you could do, you might consider Tay-Sachs screening. Um, in the Ashkenazi Jewish population, population screening. So yes, um, that would be the, the next best answer, but if you want your marks, the overall the best answer here is mammogram. So we're going to be um, speaking now about the prenatal screening. And the purpose of prenatal screening is typically used to detect um, three genetic abnormalities and neur neural tube defect. So I hope you recall from last term the trisomies, trisomy 21, 18, and 13. Why do we look for these? Think about why we look for these. What's special about these three trisomies that you don't see with the other trisomies? Compatible with life. Yes, they're compatible with life. So if we um, have a woman um, um, who's pregnant, chances are if the pregnancy is still there after a number of months, it's trisomy. If there's a genetic disorder, if there's a trisomy, 
It's 21, 18, and 13. So we typically look for um, trisomy 21, and that's the most common one because it's one in 800 live births. So you don't have to memorize the numbers. I would just like you to realize that um, trisomy 21 is much more common, one order of magnitude more common than trisomy 18, so one in 8,000 live births, and rarely we see uh, trisomy 13. So we're going to be speaking about some of the test results. The test results for trisomy 21 can be separated from both trisomy 18 and 13. The reason why we typically suggest that a, a person might, their child might have, um, or the, um, the pregnancy might be um, trisomy 18 rather than 13 is because it's much more common. Trisomy 13, um, one in like 23,000 live births. We also look for these neural tube defects. So you can think of spina bifida, you can think of anencephaly. When we're speaking about prenatal uh, screening, we have non-invasive and then we have invasive. So typically, um, a family want to do these non-invasive tests to see if there's um, perhaps any suggestion that we might have a difficulty with a pregnancy. And uh, the tests that we have with the maternal serum screening, they're predictive. We have ultrasonography that gives us some clues. These are predictive. They're not a concrete uh, diagnosis. They're just predictive. And if we have a family that has a positive result looking at markers, in maternal serum, then we might suggest that if, you, if the family wants to know for sure what's going on with this pregnancy, they might select a more non-invasive test to have um, a, a, a concrete diagnosis. So we're looking for these markers in maternal serum. So scientists have been working for a long time just looking for proteins or hormones that change um, in the maternal serum during pregnancy and how they might differ if there's a difficulty, if there's a trisomy, or if there's a neural tube defect. So um, we have first trimester screenings. Now, if you'll notice at the top in blue, we have um, the markers optimal in the maternal circulation is at 16 weeks, but we can detect these certain markers in the first trimester between 11 and 14 weeks. If we have second trimester screening, we have a couple of different markers. We can see them at 14 weeks um, to 20 weeks. So again, we have this optimal time for the markers, but what we do in the lab and what we do for patients are uh, the two different testing, first trimester and second trimester. If we see a difficulty there, if there might be a suggestion of a positive result, and I know a lot of, a lot of mothers just want to see ultrasound of their babies, the families want to see that. So with ultrasound, we can see some fetal anomalies, but we can also see something called nuchal translucency. And I'm going to be showing you pictures of that and explaining exactly what that is in a minute. So if we have um, some positive results from the non-invasive, the family might choose to do, uh, to do a more concrete diagnostic test, and that's amniocentesis and chorionic villi sampling. Now, these two tests um, will give us, can give us a genetic diagnosis. However, amniocentesis is, is uh, more safe than the chorionic villi sampling, but it can be, uh, but it's done later in gestational age. So sometimes if a family is really nervous or we have very strong suggestion there's a problem with the pregnancy, the family might choose for the chorionic villi sampling. We can do that much easier uh, in gestational time. The exact markers that we're looking for in the first trimester tests are pregnancy-associated plasma protein A or PAP-A, and then the marker human chorionic gonadotrophin, and that's the beta form. The markers for the second trimester test, and that's done after 14 weeks, we're looking for alpha fetal protein, so that, uh, that's a protein, and then a couple of hormones, estriol, it also um, written out as unconjugated estriol or UE3, and we can still, um, it's still very useful to look for the concentration of human chorionic gonadotrophin. Now, um, scientists keep on trying to improve the predictive power of these maternal serum screens, so we have another marker we look for, and that's inhibin A. A little bit about the markers. So scientists were just looking for any changes in, 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 in anything in maternal circulation so they could do a non-invasive test. The first marker that was um, discovered was alpha fetal protein. Alpha fetal protein is synthesized in the yolk sac, in the fetal GI tract, in the liver, and it's detectable in fetal serum around six weeks. Uh, but the peak level is, is 12 to 14 weeks, and that's, that's when we can see it in high concentration in the maternal serum. So this is a, a great example of a marker that changes during pregnancy. 
this is a, 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 a picture of what was in the original paper when scientists were looking for the concentrations of alpha fetal protein. They realized the first bump here. This is um, the range of uh, alpha fetal protein in maternal serum if the pregnancy is unaffected with, these trism, uh, with, with genetic difficulties, particularly open spina bifida where we see an increase in alpha fetal protein because we have the protein leaking out. And very high concentrations if a child has anencephaly, so that's um, where, where the brainstem is exposed. So we have extremely high concentrations of alpha fetal protein. Now while they were doing these tests, they realized that pregnancies um, that ha were trisomies, trisomy 21, and that's the most common, so that's what they saw first, but also trisomy 18 and 13. Scientists realized that there was a decrease in the concentration of alpha fetal protein. They're not explaining what they saw. What they, this is just a marker, what they realized they could see happening. So now we can have um, this alpha fetal protein not only looking for um, spina bifida, or anencephaly, it can also give us an idea that there might be a trisomy going on in this present, uh, in this pregnancy. This is your, um, I got a yellow star on this slide because this is your money maker slide. So if you're going to be studying, concentrate a lot on this slide. I'm not saying not to look at the other ones, but I'd like to, you to maybe take some time looking at this slide where we have on this table, we have the three trisomies and a neural tube defect. And we're looking at um, the first trimester screening. Um, the PAPPA, we see that decreased in a pregnancy um, um, that has a trisomy, so decreased in all those situations from normal. We see um, a difference between trisomy 21 and the other two trisomies, 18 and 13, where we see increase in the HCG in trisomy 21 and a decrease in the other two trisomies, 18 and 13. So again, these are markers in it, the first trimester where we would have this test, and if we had a suggestion of, say, decrease in PAPA-A and increase in beta uh, uh, HCG, we would think trisomy 21. If we saw a decrease in PAPA-A and, and um, a decrease as well in the beta uh, HCG, then we would start to think about trisomy 18 and, and, and 13. Again, we're going to be speaking about nuchal translucency. This is increased in aneuploides, a trisomy or a tetraploidy or... Um, an aneuploidy. There's one aneuploidy that I think you, you are, sorry, um, with one less chromosome that you learn that is compatible with life. Turner syndrome, yes, Turner syndrome. So if we see um, any of these aneuploidies, often we can see um, some evidence of it on, on ultrasound with its nuchal translucency. Now we're moving over to the second trimester test where we look at the estriol. It's decreased in um, if um, a product of conception is a trisomy. We have a decrease in alpha fetal protein for the, for the three trisomies. However, we see an increase with a neural tube defect. We see the same pattern in the second trimester with uh, beta HCG. Now, this last marker, this is the fourth marker, um, it's, we have seen increase in inhibin A only um, with trisomy 21. So a family might choose to have this quad test um, in the States. I'm Canadian, so I don't really understand this, but in, in America, if you wanted the quad test, you might have to pay a little bit more money. Yes, but the, I, I, I love being Canadian. Um, so this is a little bit of a summary at the top, maternal serum screening. If you see um, a question or you see some test results where we see low um, serum AFP, estriol, PAPA-A with high um, HCG and inhibin A, that indicates a risk, just a risk. It's not diagnostic, but it's an increased risk for Down syndrome, whereas if we see everything low, that indicates a risk for trisomy 18 or 13. Something that they've been doing lately because we're getting so good at um, working with DNA is um, we can look for fetal DNA fragments or cell-free DNA, CFDNA. So can you believe that we can find fragments of, of fetal DNA in maternal serum? So now we have the power. We have all the, you know, the Human Genome Project. We know all the DNA. We can actually design these tests to do some PCR. Do you remember PCR? Amplification of, of, of fragments of uh, chromosome 21. And th this is actually, it's a predictive test for now, but it's actually, they're refining it so well that it's actually approaching diagnostic power. So the detection rate um, for the trisomies, Down syndrome, trisomy 18, or um, spina bifida, detection rates, we can pick up about 80% of them. And some of these are false positives, and some of these are false negatives. We, um, anencephaly, because the alpha phenylprotein is so high, it picks up equal to or greater than 90% of the cases of anencephaly. 
So again, these results are reported as a risk. And then if a family um, has a probability of, of, of having a pregnancy that, uh, that was detected by the maternal serum screening, they might choose to perform some of the more invasive tests. We're going to be speaking about ultrasonography, often done with or without the maternal serum. Um, at 18 weeks, we can detect not only um, what we've been talking about, this nuchal translucency, but we can also detect structural abnormalities. Um, we can definitely see the neural tube defects. With the op um, at the bottom here, we have a picture of anencephaly, so the arrow is pointing to the exposed brainstem. We could also see structural defects like micrognathia. We see this that the small chin of the child. I'm um, I'm sort of hovering my mouse over it. Micrognathia, micrognathia that uh, suggests Creta-Shaw syndrome, and that's a microdeletion syndrome where we have a deletion of the petite arm of chromosome five. So we can see that, and actually, because we have this micrognathia, that's why the children, when they're born, they, they mew like a kitten, meow, 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 because they're, um, their, their chin is so small, and they also have speech problems later. If we have Edwards syndrome, and that's uh, another way of saying trisomy 18, we often see these rocker bottom feet, realizing that rocking chairs are pretty much a thing of the past, but I think you've still seen in cartoons and things, granny on, on a porch with a shotgun and a rocker, no, on a rocker. So this rocker bottom feet, that's, um, that suggests that uh, trisomy 18. Now we're going to be speaking about that nuchal translucency. If you look at the top picture here, we see an arrow pointing to a fluid-filled sac behind the neck of the baby. Depending on gestational age, an ultrasonographer will take that ultrasound, they will deem demark the boundaries of that, um, that nuchal sac. And oftentimes they'll find that they'll measure it and then they'll look up their charts and depending on gestational age, they might see an increase in this nuchal translucency. At the bottom to the left, we um, see that region that is demarked by the two, the, the two crosses here and that's within the normal range. But over to the, the right, we see um, the two marks depicted there and there's an increase in the nuchal translucency versus gestational age. So again, we can see this increase in the trisomies 18, 13, and 21, triploidy, and with Turner syndrome. So if we have a positive result from any of the, the predictive uh, tests, we might, um, uh, we would direct the family to either just sit with it, bear with it, and see what happens. And a lot of families, they just want to do their best, um, to do the best that they can to take care of the child when they get it. And sometimes uh, families truly appreciate having the information and then they can call, call, call in the guards, call in the cavalry and tell their family that we might have a child with a difficulty who can help out and they might reach out into the community and uh, surround the family with a good support system to take care of the child that they're, 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 they're going to be having. They might choose a different way. They might choose to do some further testing before making that decision. So again, we're trying to give all of the information to the family. Um, chorionic villi sampling, I have this first because it's done early in gestational age. It involves removal of fetal cells by aspiration from the inner surface of the placenta. We can do this 11 to 12 weeks. And then we can do that direct fish. Do you remember fish? Fluorescent in situ hybridization. Right, we can take these cells and do a direct fish and we can um, look for, count up the chromosomes. In, in particular, we want to see the chromosomes 21, 18, and 13 to see if we have three of those. Now, we have risk um, because of the invasiveness of this chorionic uh, villi sampling with the, this cannula um, coming in and, and selecting those cells, always done under the guidance of ultrasound. Um, there is um, an increased risk of having a spontaneous miscarriage, and it's a, a little bit higher than what we would see with amniocentesis. So a family could choose, we give this information to the family, and they can choose to wait a little while to, so this invasive test is a little bit more safe. Um, some families want to know right away or earlier in gestational time, so they can either call, call, start to think about what they want to do with this pregnancy. And again, you give them the information, and it's for them to choose. Amniocentesis done 15 to 18 weeks. So we're going to be um, aspirating some of the amniotic fluid again under the guidance of ultrasonography. And then we can have some fetal cells. We can pellet that down and we can do some direct genetic tests or, or else we can um, just look for the concentration of protein to give us the predictive power if we have a trisomy, if we have spina bifida or anencephaly. 
there's a reduced risk of the spontaneous abortion after this procedure, but because it's done fairly late in gestation, we have to think about the ethical and emotional um, risk to the family. So it's, it's up for them to choose as long as uh, we do our best as caregivers to give the family all the information we have at the time. Um, this last example is per percutaneous umbilical, umbilical blood sampling. It's a lot easier to say PUBS, and that's the acronym for it. And this is usually done after 18 weeks of gestation, and there can be a lot of reasons why somebody doesn't get any testing till 18 weeks. They could have been out of the country. Um, sometimes women just don't know that they're pregnant. Um, so this is a test that we can do a little bit later in gestational time and is a rather quick result. So again, this is performed when there's delayed suspicion of a chromosomal abnormality, um, usually detected um, by ultrasound in the second trimester. So we do that rapid chromosome test. And do you remember what um, the chromosomal spread test is? It's called a karyotype. So we can do that karyotype rather quickly and um, we can follow that up with um, the fluorescent in situ hybridization. Oftentimes, uh, a family only realizes there's a person called a genetic counselor, a prenatal genetic counselor, uh, until after we have an abnormal serum screening for neural tube defects or chromosomal abnormalities. But also, they might first hear about prenatal genetic counseling after having an abnormal um, ultrasound finding. But there's a number of other families who choose to be um, counseled by prenatal genetic counseling. And those are couples where they have a history of miscarriage, um, or there might be infertility or stillbirths, couples older than 35. Um, oftentimes, people will seek out the help of a prenatal genetic counseling if, they have, if they've had a previous child with a difficulty, a previous child with an inborn error of metabolism, and that's typically the autosomal recessive disorders. And um, oftentimes, people of specific, uh, specific ethnicities want to know um, about their chances of having a child with a defect if they have some genetic information or some sort of predisposition uh, by their ethnicities or um, because of their, their, their family history. So people who have history of, of these autosomal recessive disorders like me, if I'm carrying a, a cystic fibrosis mutant allele, <coughs> my husband does as well, we can have our products of conception tested and analyzed for that particular difficulty that we're looking for. You can imagine that our time is limited when we're testing um, these fertilized eggs, we only have a few times when the blastocyst is between the 8 and 16 cell stage. We can take a cell, do a rapid test for one or two disorders, and then decide um, which of the, the eggs are viable or contain um, no genetic difficulty. So we call this artificial reproductive technology, or ART. So it, this involves fertilizing the egg with sperm in vitro. So there's a lot of steps that go along the way with hormones and timing to make sure once we have this um, artificial reproductive technology after it's performed that we have to implant it back within a certain amount of time. Uh, we can do looking for polar bodies, and this would be looking for um, um, difficulties in, um, on the female side, looking for perhaps X, X chromosome difficulties. And over to the right, we have the blastocyst looking for uh, a number of different autosomal recessive disorders. So uh, you don't have to memorize this slide. I just wanted you to realize that we have pre-implantation um, pre genetics available for a lot of the difficulties that um, some et ethnic populations have high carrier frequency for. We have less common fragile X, Gaucher, osteogenesis, imperfected, just to name a few. So I have a little cartoon on the bottom suggesting that we had biopsies of five different cells. Two did not harbor mutations in that particular gene, so they, those would be implanted back into mom. And over to the right, do you remember what this is, what I'm circling here? Over to the right. I'll start you off, interface fish. Oh no, don't forget your genetics from last term. This is an interface fish and we have markers for chromosome 18, 21, and 13. And in this case, we're looking at the X chromosome as well for uh, Turner's. So we were talking about some of the genetic disorders we can see in a genetic counselor and how they would help a family cope with perhaps if they have uh, positive testing for the maternal serum screening. Oftentimes, um, there's a number of um, inborn errors of metabolism that we, a family doesn't know is in their family because, you know, the first time is just when two people get together and they both have a mutation in particular allele, and then they would have a 25 chance of having an affected child. So a lot of times, um, these just suddenly appear. Sometimes people have family history. However, um, in 44 countries, I think, and counting, um, in the world, we have this 
newborn screening. So there was very, um, there's a very uh, tight outline as to what kind of diseases constitute um, being considered for a newborn screening. So the criteria is the disorder produces irreversible damage of untreated early in life, and there's a treatment available for this disorder. So we make sure that whenever we're doing these, um, these newborn screenings that there's definitely a treatment, and early intervention is very uh, effective for improving the quality of life for these children. And we have this reliable uh, test for detection, and then once we have a positive result, we immediately um, confirm it by retesting. So there's, in America, there's actually a bill which discusses newborn screening. The idea about newborn screening, so, so first we're going to be talking about the traditional medicine. Traditional medicine, where we have um, theoretically normal at the beginning, then we start to show symptoms of the disorder. We go to the doctor, we get a diagnosis, and we have a treatment that brings the person back to normalcy. So we're always trying to get uh, back to um, normal levels of whatever disease um, we're talking about. But with newborn screening, the idea is if we have a child that has an inborn error of metabolism, and um, they, because they have a block in one of their enzymes, they start to, start to build up um, toxic metabolites, then quite early when the baby starts to metabolize, that's why we do it after 24 hours because the baby has to be metabolizing on their own, we can take a little bit of blood and do some tests. Um, there's a number of different uh, diseases that we, w that we um, test for. We can get that diagnosis while the child is still effectively normal, doesn't have toxic uh, metabolites in their blood, we have the diagnosis, we implement the treatment to keep back at normalcy. So we never have to go, we're, it's all preclinical stage. We never have to have that child go through the symptoms and have the difficulties. And oftentimes when we have toxic metabolites in children, we have um, a lot of um, brain damage in, under these conditions. So our, the idea is we want to treat before in the preclinical stage. What we do with the newborn screening is the poor little guy, this little guy we prick, we give a heel prick. And then we dab the blood onto a card, and over to the top right, we have a card with the, the circles and the dots. We have to fill up those circles with dots because there's going to be a number of tests performed on those blood spots. And what happens is we, um, in, in America, in all the states, in Canada, in all the provinces, in the smaller countries, the European countries, they're small. They're as big as our states or provinces, right? So each sort of um, organized group has, or organized unit has uh, a facility um, so you'll mail off the blood spots. In this case, we have a picture of a baby um, getting blood taken, and it's sent to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Not Rochester, New York. Rochester, the other one. What's the other state? What? Minnesota. Okay. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm Canadian. I'm geographically impaired as well. Um, so we have this blood spot. It's taken to a, a major facility. We do the testing. And I have a picture of something called an MSMS. And this is also known as a tandem MS. And this is where we look for a lot of the toxic metabolites that might be accumulating in baby's blood. This is just to suggest that there's a lot of countries on board, um, 49 countries participating, and that's when I looked at 2012, and I should update this, but there's a lot of countries participating in this newborn screening process. At the top, I have the North American experience. And um, fellows, after you get your, your MDs and you finish your residency, you might choose to do a specialty in genetics, and then you might be invited to the Mayo Clinic like this one fellow was. She was a little bit more heavy there. You might not recognize me. Um, but we can learn about um, all about this newborn screening, and if you choose to, uh, to go into genetics, it's, it's a wonderful place to learn. The Mayo Clinic, wonderful place, beautiful as well. So what we can look for, these are um, all the tests sort of uh, highlighted here. Again, you don't have to memorize any of these. What I'd like you to notice is that um, I've highlighted phenylketonuria, and so that's a high concentration of phenylalanine because the enzyme that breaks down phenylalanine um, isn't working. So we'll have a toxic in, uh, amount of phenylalanine in baby's blood until we have some sort of difficulties uh, giving rise to um, mental retardation, etc. But we can also look at a number of amino acidopathies. We can have a breakdown in any of the enzymes that break down any of the amino acids. We have organic acid metabolism disorders. Um, that I'm circling in the middle. And at the bottom, we have the fatty acid oxidation disorder. So 
enzymes that are involved in breaking down proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. If we have a, back, uh, a breakdown anywhere there, we can have these toxic metabolites. And that's why we call them inborn errors of metabolism. And you're going to be learning a lot more about what happens with intermediary metabolism in, in this unit and next. We can also do perform electrophoresis, looking for um, a mutation in the hemoglobin, um, sickle cell, in hemoglobin uh, C, we, we have uh, a change in one amino acid that leads to changed mobility um, on protein electrophoresis. And we can look for cystic fibrosis using the immunoreactive trypsinogen test. And we're going to be speaking about the most recent addition, looking for s uh, severe combined immunodeficiency. And that's the, the latest test that's been added to the, the panel for newborn screening. But that's the newest one, so we're going to be speaking about the first one, and that's um, with Guthrie. And Guthrie um, devised a bacterial inhibition test. So if um, a drop of blood has a lot of phenylalanine in it, and you put it in the presence of bacteria, that's been inhibited for breaking down phenylalanine. And if um, that bacteria grows, we might, we might see a change. That's because there's a change in the blood. The blood has more phenylalanine in it. So that, these were the original tests done in the 1960s looking for this inborn error of metabolism. Um, and at the bottom we have what we do nowadays, and that's using the tandem mass spec or MSMS, where you can take the controls, and in your blood you should not have high concentrations of any amino acids. We should be metabolizing them all. So to the left we have a percent intensity, and we see sort of all these different lines with a little bit of all the, of the amino acids. Over to the right, this would be um, a sample of blood taken, or it could, it could be urine taken from a patient who has phenylketonuria, where after doing the test, we only see a high concentration of phenylalanine way down in the little grass area here. Those are the concentrations of the under, other amino acids. So if we see a high concentration of one amino acid, it would present on your graph just like here on the bottom right. So that would suggest after 24 hours, this baby had a heel prick. He got the, we had the, the blood spot sent to um, the Mayo Clinic, and this was what happened. We have a high concentration of phenylalanine. The family will be um, notified, and, the, and the, the family physician notified right away that we have a problem with metabolizing phenylalanine. What do you think we can do for the baby after that? Change their diet and restrict phenylalanine. So if that child never gets a lot of phenylalanine to have to metabolize, then that child, we can avoid having that first neurological hit. That child never has to have a toxic amount of phenylalanine in their blood or urine because we've restricted phenylalanine in their diet. The idea of tandem mass spectroscopy is if we're, you might think, how do we use one machine to detect all of these different things? We're looking for lipids, organic acids, or amino acids. The idea is, is you take a blood spot, and then you derivatize, you put a, um, a chemical flag on, say, just the amino acids. So if we have this chemical flag, we call it ionization. If we, um, if we ionize all the amino acids with this particular uh, mole molecular tag, we can detect only the amino acids in the first mass spec by magic. Of course, it's computers and such in a molecular weights. And then the machine is told to recognize only the molecules in that blood or urine that have that, that, that tag, that, that ionized tag. And then we go to the second mass spec where we're only looking for those molecules that are tagged, in this case amino acids, and then it, it gives a lot of energy into it, blows it apart, and then we have what we call a fragmentation pattern. And we have um, a library of all the fragmentation patterns of all the amino acids, and at the end, um, the scientists would match it up and they would let you know the different levels of all the derivatized amino acids that were in that sample. So I could go into a lot of detail, but I won't because I know you don't really care. You want to be doctors. You just want to know how to interpret the pattern, right? Yeah. So all I want you to do is know these one, two, three bullets, and that's for the tandem mass spectroscopy or MSMS. We can derivatize different molecules. We can derivatize all of the fatty acids or we could derivatize only the amino acids, or we could derivatize just the organic acids, depending on what we're looking for with that test. The story of phenylketonuria and Guthrie is just, uh, just uh, remarkable, it's marvelous, and has actually um, gave us the groundwork for what we're doing now with the newborn screening. Back in the day, in the, before the 1960s, if you had a child with phenylketonuria, high, uh, not 
able to um, metabolize that phenylalanine. What would happen is the child would very quickly ingest a lot of phenylalanine because mummies want to feed their babies, of course. So um, we have um, inability to metabolize uh, phenylalanine. We have these toxic hits to the child. What happened before in the 1960s that these children would be institutionalized, severe mental retardation, um, didn't communicate at all. So we see a picture of this poor young lady um, with a funny posture and just not being very interactive at all. But then if you look at the picture here right in the middle, we see a young man in the 1960s after Guthrie developed his test. He had clinical features of phenylketonuria. Family sent him for testing. He had phenylketonuria. He began a restricted diet at two years of age. Now he still has mental retardation, but a lot more interactive, happy young man. Because family had information on their firstborn son, when their daughter came along, they tested right away. They tested within the first 24 hours. She was treated from birth. She developed normally. She had a phenylalanine-restricted diet um, for most of her developing years, went to university, had a family. So this is the power of newborn screening. Now, I have to tell you that not all the scenarios are the same. Sometimes we have clinical features of some of the other inborn, er inborn errors of metabolism. It's a very delicate sort of um, game that dietitians play because the child is growing, right? So you have to give enough, enough um, nutrients for, for growth and survival. Um, but sometimes we have difficulty and there's still ensuing toxic hits, but there's a lot more, it's a lot better managed. So phenylketonuria, that's the gold star. That's a great example that we can help all these people out just by restricting the metabolite that could become toxic. We also have sickle cell disease, and this is the different test, not tandem um, mass spec, where we have um, the electrophoresis of the protein. We haven't denatured the protein, so we're just running the protein um, on a native uh, page uh, gel. So, um, but you know, looking for sickle cell disease, um, for the newborn screening, we can do this, this test, the electrophoresis, but we know that we have confirmatory, confirmatory tests. Remember the southern blot analysis, PCR, RFLP, do you remember that? ASO tests. And we have a treatment for people who are diagnosed with sickle cell disease. We can prevent sickling crisis, um, give blood transfusions, and the use, the use of hydroxyurea. So if we have an early indication that a child has sickle cell, we can watch out for these things to try to make sure that um, um, there's no, um, just be, <laughs> I can't think of the words. My goodness. So just to make sure the family is aware that we have this difficulty, so just to be uh, on the lookout for difficulties and get treatment right away. Thalassemias, both uh, A and B, both shown autosomal recessive inheritance, and they can both be detected by mean corpuscular hemoglobin or hemoglobin electrophoresis. And um, actually, screening of young adults for beta thalassemia carrier status has, in Greece has actually markedly decreased the birth incidence of children with beta thalassemia. Um, the next disease, uh, cystic fibrosis. We've already learned a lot about cystic fibrosis. Mutation in the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator. Um, high um, carrier frequency in Caucasians. And actually, um, one in 8,000 uh, people of Ashkenazi Jewish population and such. So we have these different populations. And I know in Caucasians, we have that Delta F508 high frequency, but in, in, um, there's a lot of other mutations that can give rise to cystic fibrosis. There's common ones to Caucasians, but there's common ones just to the Ashkenazi Jewish population. There's other common ones um, um, common to Hispanics. So we now have a lot of um, tests to confirm, um, or we can do the genetic uh, screening to confirm whether a person has uh, cystic fibrosis. However, because there's so many different mutations that can give rise to cystic fibrosis, it's wonderful that we have this gold standard test called the sweat chloride test, and this is the confirmatory test. So no matter what the genetic mutation, if we have a positive with a sweat chloride test, that suggests cystic fibrosis. So if you realize that your child has cystic fibrosis, we would always, if, if there's any sort of respiratory infections, we would combat that immediately with antibiotics. Um, there's gene therapy with hit and miss results, but um, we can also manage uh, the, the associated malabsorption. And with severe combined immunodeficiency, um, we're looking for um, the failure of T lymphocyte development. You don't need to know much about that. The next slide actually has a little bit of detail so that you don't have to go out of your way to look for it. Um, and with management, we can manage this with bone marrow transplant. And just again, being aware 
is um, important for the family. So again, extra information, not on a test, just in case you want to know so you don't have to Google or, 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 or look at YouTube. So most couples, they learn that they're carriers only after they have a birth of an affected child. There might be no family history. Um, so uh, carrier screening off, uh, offers the opportunity to identify couples at risk. You might find out that um, um, your sister has a, an affected child, so you might want to, to have that that test done for yourself. So um, we can do the carrier testing, screening for heterozygous or carriers, because typically we would know if somebody's affected, yes? So we're looking for carriers, and that could be based on sometimes um, there's, there's mild clinical manifestations, there could be biochemical abnormalities, even though phenotypically a person is normal, genotypically we might have altered biochemistry of particular enzymes like hexosimidase activity and Tay-Sachs. But then we also have these specific molecular diagno diagnosis like the ASO arrays or mutation analysis. So um, if we don't have these well-defined tests per, uh, for a family, like say a family has a unique mutation, then um, we can start to design some of those other things and that's look, look, uh, performing some of the methods that we've already learned about, um, the, the PCR, RFLP, and such where we can do that particular for a family or doing sequencing looking for the particular mutation. So we have options um, if we have a couple that have, that have their carrier screening performed. It's just giving the family the information. What can they do um, to plan for their family? They might choose not to have biological children or they could um, have the artificial reproductive technology, etc. or just be very careful with the prenatal diagnosis or having, insisting on this newborn screening if they're in a region that doesn't have newborn screening for their difficulty to insist on that. So we have a number of challenges uh, of the carrier screening program, like for diseases like cystic fibrosis and, and thalassemia. There's a lot of allelic heterogeneity, many mutations that give rise to the disease. We test for typically the common ones, but somebody could still harbor a mutation that perhaps has not been described in the literature. We don't have any, um, any um, pre-made tests for it. Um, if you're, for example, cystic fibrosis, the DNA panel is around 25 of the most common mutations. And again, we have different panels for the different um, ethnicities just to get a better bang for our buck. But um, if, say, I have the Delta F508 and um, I'm with a fella and he has a negative carrier, uh, negative carrier screening of all the known mutations or the 25 common ones, he, we still have this residual risk of having a child with cystic fibrosis because we just might not be looking for the particular mutation that he has on his allele. Um, this is a, a nice clinical synopsis of newborn screening in the genetic counselor. Um, the physicians or the genetic counselor is saying, my first patient, a four-week-old girl, is coming in due to a positive newborn screening for cystic fibrosis. But before coming in to see the genetic counselor, the, the child will come to the hospital with family and do that sweat chloride test. Um, the, the family has no medical history of respiratory gastrointestinal pro, uh, problems. Upon arrival, the, the genetic counselor learns that there was a negative sweat, sweat chloride test, suggesting that perhaps this child is a carrier. But this child is, is just, uh, what is it, um, a four-week-old girl. Do we have, does the parents have the right to send that girl for genetic screening testing? I think not. I think we have to wait until that child can decide on her own when she's old enough, age of consent, to have her own genetic screening. So, and then the family has a child, so we know that either mom or dad is a carrier of the mutation, and now do you tell your extended family that you have um, a child that, that is, um, might be a carrier of this mutation? So all sorts of things happen when we find out that there's a genetic disorder in the family. A lot of things to think about, and that's why it's wonderful to have a genetic counselor who's trained in learning how to disseminate this information to family, offer the family all the choices that are available to them, tell them about what's in the community, the, the family uh, groups that, that help people struggle with these genetic disorders and get through these genetic disorders. So during a genetic counseling session, all these types of things are discussed. Um, you, the family might not understand autosomal recessive disorders, how they're passed down, so a genetic counselor will teach genetics, similar to what I do sometimes teach genetics, but um, in, a, in a more um, um, the common person type language. So in addition, they would have to discuss when the daughter is planning a family of her own, at that time she might choose to have genetic counseling. And um, the, the parents decided to have the carrier 
um, carrier uh, status checked because they could both have mutations in that cystic fibrosis gene. Right now, their first child is just a carrier. So what is genetic counseling? We've gone over this in the past. It's to help the family understand and adapt to the situation or perhaps um, discuss any of the medical, um, psychological, or familial implications um, of genetic uh, contributions to disease. So the genetic counselor is responsible for giving all of this information to the family. It's actually a very wonderful career. They do a lot of um, um, a lot of studies after um, their their undergraduate degree, and they train with geneticists in order. To, and they work hand in hand. So in a lot of clinics, you have a nurse or a nurse practitioner. In a genetics clinic, you have a genetic counselor. So counseling definitely to pr to uh, promote informed choices. So the goals here, and this is your moneymaker slide, you can put a gold, uh, a gold star on this one too. The goals of genetic counseling is to inform the family of the characteristics of the disorder, probability of developing the disorder, risk of passing the disorder on to children, and about the options to prevent or ameliorate the disorder. So get your clickers out. Ethical questions are very difficult to ask. So you have to think about what we've been speaking about so far. Okay, three, two, one. Everybody click. Two more seconds. Everybody click. Okay, I'm going to proceed. Okay, that's exactly right. Explain what these results may suggest and how they're likely to proceed. So, it's, again, these tests are predictive in the maternal serum. They're predictive. So now um, I have a few more slides which discuss... Um, some of the, the, the goals of genetic counseling and thinking about genetics. And you can, um, I, Dr. Chilipil is here, and I know you want to take your break. So you, on, on your own time, you can um, l read about um, some of the common issues involved in this genetics. It's your genes, your choice. Most common issues involve autonomy, informed, cons informed choice, informed consent, and confidentiality. So there's four slides. There's one slide accompanying each one. And they're very brief slides speaking about autonomy and informed choice, informed consent. But what I'd like you to think about now before you go away on your break and, and before you learn what you're going to learn from Dr. Chilapilla is thinking about the ethical dilemmas of having people with uh, disseminating your genetic information. I might have a child with a difficulty, and that means I'm a carrier, but do I disclose that to my boss when I just get hired for a job that I'm a carrier of, of, of a genetic disorder that I might have more children and say they're giving me my med medical for free, my, my medical insurance, how that might affect their choice of hiring me? Who do I tell? What kind of protection do I have if I have um, um, a, positive, a, a positive for a genetic defect? So... Health insurance, do we have to disclose that? Should it cost us more money? Say I'm perfectly normal and there's nobody's had anything in my family, but I have, but I, for some reason I got tested for Huntington's and I know that in the future I might, you know, have difficulty. I might not last that long at a job. Thinking about this, the genetics. What happens if you have this genetic information? Who do you have to tell? And what rights do you have? I'd rather not, um, I, 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 I'm just saying my personal opinion. I would rather know all of the rules before. I gave away that information, so we have to think about it. all you people here, you're the future of medicine, so people here in this room, you're going to be making perhaps some of these rules. So something to think about, huh? What do we do this information? The genetic information is wonderful. Now what happens next? Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>